I'm Kelsey. I'm Cassie. And I'm Nolan from SCP Weekly. We bring you news from on-site and off-site. And we share your love for the creative community that surrounds the SCP Wiki. Join us on Tuesdays for new episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube at SCP Weekly. Welcome to the library, Wanderer. Our rules are three. Respect your fellow patrons. Do not damage the library. Return your books on time. You'll need a card to check out, of course. See the front desk for that. It should be just under a week's journey from here. You'll have to give the archivist your true name, but don't worry. We'll keep it under the strictest levels of security. Oh, and stay away from locked doors. There are places here where even we will not protect you. We would like to extend a special thanks to our associate producers, Dr. Theron Sherman, Sogapple, Adrian, Ethan Childers, Uncertainty Crossing, Angie Oriana, Cameron Schaus, Lisa Person, and Salem. What you are hearing is the result of their generous support. Now please, sit back and enjoy The Journal of Aphromos Long Journey. The Journal of Aphromos Long Journey. Pilgrim, an introduction. The Ravelwoods have fascinated scholars for nearly 2,000 years now, ever since the publication of Varnip the Larger's unbelievable bestiary. Scholars, naturalists, and hunters have been hungry for more information. Sadly, for many, many years, knowledge of the Ravelwoods came in bits and pieces, as passage there seemed to happen at random, through crumbling archways on abandoned estates, in caves in the desert, or even through the odd garderobe. Thankfully, the Petwise pathway has given us a more permanent, stable access way into this fascinating realm, and since its discovery, we have added to our store of knowledge by leaps and bounds. I myself first encountered information on Ravelwoods when, as a boy, I read Savage, Man-Eating Monsters of the Far Realms by the tragically abridged Arnest Belriger. Aside from providing wholesome entertainment, it sparked in me a fascination and lifelong love of that far-off place. I devoted my life to the subject, coming here, to the Rev Library, where the greatest collection of works pertaining to Ravelwoods can be found. From Bovi Estward's treatise on the politics of the Blackshirt Crows, to Transitive Norton's On the River of Terror with Rod, Reel, and Gun, they're all here. I have catalogued them, read through them, and cross-referenced them. I don't think that it's arrogant for me to say that I have become one of the best-read experts on the woods. And now I have a unique opportunity. When the arch-librarian was given a set of rare books and scrolls, 
by the Periarch of Bath, there was among them a very old volume. It was by one of those strange nomads who haunt the Barrow Desert, sometimes venturing out on strange pilgrimages to places even they do not know. Their journals, when they keep them, are always prized, of course. They are an honest people and not given to exaggeration. How wonderful, then, to find one detailing the Ravelwoods themselves. As I read through the journal, I was struck by his sense of wonder in his surroundings. Even the most mundane of the things he saw in the Ravelwoods were fascinating to him, and to me as well, seeing them through his eyes. Everything seemed new to me again. And there were some things he wrote about that were genuinely new to me, and to every other scholar on the Ravelwoods I've written to. And of course, some things I can only guess at. Knowledge is meant to be shared, and so I cannot keep this volume to myself. Therefore, I've taken it upon myself to annotate the journal, both for old researchers of the woods and for those who are new to this fascinating world. Whoever you are, if you love the wild and the wondrous, please read on. Spring Equinox, 7th year, 81st turn. Spring has come, and it is time for all young Conlins to begin their quests. That includes me. Conlin roughly translates to child or hatchling, though perhaps youngster is a better word. And tomorrow, I will learn what my task shall be. I will no longer be Aphromos Tremoren. Tomorrow... I will get my task name, the name by which I will be known for the rest of my life. I have been given this journal, which will detail my quest and the steps I undertook to complete my quest. If I do well enough, it will be given to later Conlins to study before they undertake their quests. Will I be a crafter, like my first father? A priest, like my second father? Or perhaps a dowser, like my mother? Iron Sword, Solwood, Deepwell. Their task names. Their adult names. They are no longer identified simply by their clan, but by who they have become, and by the quests they undertook to take those names. What will mine be? What task will the elders give me? Will I be able to live up to the task? I cannot help but think of my oldest brother, who failed his task. He was stripped of his task name. He has no status in the clan. He can never hope to be more than a third husband, even if he can find a female who wants him. I fear that I may end up like him. More, with both of the eldest sons disgraced, my family may never recover face. Still, the elders are fair. They will not give me an impossible task. I am not afraid to work hard. Whatever task they give me, I will finish. Or else I will die trying and save my family the shame. And that is our first entry in the journal. 
and our first look at Aframos. I only commented lightly on this entry, both because I found the content to be self-explanatory and because my expertise does not extend to the culture of the Barrow Nomads. I will explain the more puzzling terms, but for the most part, I will leave discussion of the Nomads to other scholars. My business lies elsewhere in the text. Marde, first cycle, seventh year, 81st turn. Long journey. My name is Long Journey. The elders made their decision, and I am torn. There have only been two long journeys in the histories, one of whom became a hero. It is an honor to receive the name, and yet, and yet it feels like a banishment. I understand why the elders chose this quest for me. It's clear as day. One son has already failed in his quest. If I fail as well, my family may never recover, and so I become a pilgrim. I am to go forth until I find something that the clan needs but does not have. If I find it, then I will earn my new name, and my family will be redeemed. And if I don't find it, if I don't come back, I will not be said to have failed. Either way, I cannot dishonor my family. The elders never said this, of course. They would not. They are too kind to do so. But I could see it in their eyes. They do not expect me to come back. And for my family, for my mother and my three fathers, I cannot. Not unless I complete my quest. It is hard what I must do, but it is necessary. At least I have until the solstice to prepare. While the other Conlins learn the basics of their new crafts, I will prepare myself, arrange supplies, and... I am sorry. I spilled my ink on that last part. I am distracted. I will write more tomorrow. The next few entries deal with Aphromos readying himself for his quest. There were few enough during the next 13 cycles, and most of them were of a very personal nature, as Aphromos said goodbye to those around him. I hope I can be forgiven this sentimentality, but I felt it was best that these entries remain off this record. I will be skipping ahead to the beginning of his journey on the 13th cycle. Before I go any further, perhaps I should explain the calendar of the Barrow Nomads. Where we divide the 420 days of the year into 14 months of three 10-day weeks, the Barrow Nomads have a much more complicated system. They divide the year into four seasons. These solstices and equinoxes are of cardinal importance to them. Important undertakings tend to begin on the equinoxes, whereas it's considered bad luck to start any new endeavor on solstices. Each season consists of its corresponding equinox or solstice and 13 eight-day cycles. Spring solstice is the first day of the year. Turns are marked by the passing of the Windness Hawley Comet. The Barrow Nomads, not having a proper scientific grounding, call it the Bright Herald, and 
believe it brings news of the new turn to the world, or some such primitive superstition. Thus, a turn lasts roughly 82 and one-third years. The eight days of the cycle are Mar Day, Sky Day, Rock Day, Bur Day, Skull Day, Arav Day, Tres Day, and Crow Day. You will therefore note that the next entry takes place 12 cycles later, or 96 days. Nine and a half weeks may seem like a great deal of time to skip over, but trust me when I say that nothing of scholarly interest took place in that time. Marday, 13th cycle, 7th year, 81st turn. I have done it. This morning I left the clan at the late spring oasis. Now I will have a cycle of travel before the solstice and will hopefully avoid misfortune. I will need as much luck as I can find. Today, travel was fairly uneventful. I am traveling north, towards the Far Downs. The goat herders of the Far Downs are, I am told, a somewhat more civilized breed of troll, constantly at war with their wilder neighbors. Aside from making fine cheeses and textiles, they are famed for their engineering prowess, often creating bridges spanning miles out of nothing more than stone, wood, and woven goat hair. I have never been there, but I have heard that the goat herders there are friendly. The money my first father gave me will be useful in dealing with them, so I am confident in that leg of my journey. Perhaps they can give me advice on where to go from there. I do have one note of interest. I passed by a large stone this afternoon. For the most part, it was identical to many other such stones in the desert. Reddish-brown, rough to the hand, and roughly spherical. It was about twice my height in diameter, and at high height, there was writing. It indicated that someone, I could not make out the name, had been there. There was a strange, almost totemic picture inscribed next to the writing, depicting some sort of creature peering over what I took to be a wall. Only the creature's fingers and the top of its head appeared over the wall. It had two crudely made circles for eyes and an oval snout. The head had neither fur nor scales on it, but that may be due to the stylized nature of the drawing. The only other significant feature of the figure were two large pointed ears, much like a fox's. I wonder who left it there. The picture Aphromos found on the rock was undoubtedly a totem of some sort, perhaps some sort of guardian over the area around the rock. Maybe in days gone by, people met by this rock and created a deity to keep watch. Truly fascinating. The writing, on the other hand, is clearly graffiti. Skull Day, 13th cycle, 7th year, 81st turn. I have reached the Far Downs this afternoon. There is scattered grass on the rolling hills, covering them like mould. The ground is firm and slightly damp beneath my feet. It is a little bit like the Oasis, or near the Trescu River, but it is also cool, even though it is afternoon. It is nice, I think, though I wonder what winters are like. Despite their appearance, the Barrow Nomads are warm-blooded. Indeed, 
They are very good at regulating their body temperatures, often learning to do so on a conscious level. Well, it gets cold in the desert. My robes are thick. If I become too cold, I will simply need to buy thicker ones. In the distance, I can see a great darkness just over the horizon. At first, I believed it to be a storm. However, it hasn't moved all day. I think I may be seeing mountains. They say they are mountains beyond the far downs where the wild trolls live. Wild trolls are large, nearly as big as I am, and supposedly tremendously strong, even compared to their cousins. A male mountain troll of the Varidans Crest subspecies generally attains a height of 8 to 9 feet. The females are somewhat larger. I will need to plan my route carefully once I have a clearer idea of where I can go from here. Hopefully the goat herds can tell me where to go and how to avoid their dangerous cousins. Where should I go? I still don't know. I could go to the cities in the east. Strong metals come from the east, and the tribe could certainly use the secret of that work. But does it need it? Or I could go to the north. They know powerful magics in the Northlands, and there are certainly things that could benefit my people. But I am not a mage. Could I learn enough? Or I could circle the desert and learn the mysteries of the spirit. But neither am I a priest. I have spoken with my second father enough to know that. How can I separate which mysteries are valuable and which are not? At least I may ignore the West. There is nothing in that direction but ghosts and demons. I will learn nothing of value there. As a Westerner, I hardly need mention that Aphromos was wrong about this, the Revision and Oversight Committee notwithstanding. Erev Day, 13th Cycle, 7th Year, 81st Turn I met a goat herd today. His name was Grotmore Horgan. He was cautious, not friendly enough once he saw I was no threat. His goats seemed more careful, and none would approach me closely. I am usually good with animals, but his goats seemed less inclined to believe my good intentions. Grotmore did not know of anything I might find to help my clan. However, he told me that a hermit lives nearby. The hermit is called Twisthorn, and Grotmore said he was a traveller in his youth. He might have encountered something my clan will need. I haven't found the hill that Twisthorn calls home yet, but I did see something most interesting. It was late in the afternoon, and the sky was a light grey-blue. I heard something in the air. It sounded like a low buzzing, almost like a nest of bees. I looked up, and there was a most peculiar thing. It was flying, like a bat or a harpy, but it appeared to be a made thing. As near as I was able to tell, it was made of cloth, wood, and thin pieces of metal. There was a central box-like structure, and I saw what looked like a clockwork within. I thought I saw crystals set on its surface, but I could not be certain, as it moved very quickly. I watched it fly around me for several minutes before leaving, heading to the west. Was it indeed a device of some sort? If so, who made it, and for what purpose? This device bears a striking resemblance to similar clockwork engines 
found in parts of the Ravelwoods. However, those tend to be more aggressive than the one Aphromos encountered. Extrot Misplor theorizes that their scouts are more powerful, intelligent machines part of a mechanical empire. While it's tempting to dismiss this theory out of hand, one must remember the legend of the Gearnort civilization, told in many disparate parts of the Ravelwoods and associated worlds. I was told there were strange things outside the desert, and this did not seem dangerous. Tresday, 13th cycle, 7th year, 81st turn. I feel like a bit of a fool now. I was supposed to be looking for a rock that looked like a face. However, I was looking for a barrow face instead of a troll's. It is obvious in hindsight, but I didn't realize it until I'd been leaning against the rock in question. Once I found that landmark, I was able to find the Hermit's Hill very quickly. By mid-morning, I had found the cottage. An old troll was sitting on a wooden chair by the door. He introduced himself as Twisthorn. Twisthorn is an interesting person. He is the largest troll I have ever seen. If age hadn't bent his back, I think he would be taller than I am. This would make Twisthorn one of the largest trolls in that part of the world. It is likely that he was from the northern mountains, where trolls grow larger. It is strange that he had taken up with the civilized goat herds, but it's not entirely unheard of. One of his horns is straight from his head, as was Grotmore's, but the other has a sharp bend halfway, pointing it forward. I believe that was how he got his name. I felt it was impolite to ask. He seemed slightly surprised to see me. I think he was expecting company from someone else. He was most accommodating, however, and invited me in for tea. Twisthorn's home is a strange building. It is not made of stone or clay, as other buildings I've seen. Instead, it's made of wood from trees. There aren't many trees in the Far Downs, so you must have gone far afield to gather enough wood for its construction. Its roof is made from cut grasses, made into what Twisthorn calls thatch. There are windows made of glass in the walls, which seem out of place in such a modest building. In Nalifron, few people can afford more than one or two glass windows. I have heard it is much the same in other cities. Twisthorn's home has ten of various sizes and shapes. At least, I think it has ten. I only counted seven on the outside, but I can see ten inside. They range from a small square window as large as my hand to a large star-shaped window high in the north wall. The inside is oddly cluttered. There are strange bottles, jars and other containers on shelves, with papers scattered around them. There are several chairs and two beds, only one of which has been slept in. He owns many books, certainly more than a hundred, and wrote many of them himself. Chests and boxes occupy every bit of space not taken up by furniture with just enough space left over to move around. There is also a large writing desk, where I am sitting now. We drank tea, flavoured with odd spices, while I told Twisthorn why I was travelling. He thinks that he can help me, but explained that he needed to look at something first. 
He left, asking me to watch his cabin overnight. It may seem strange that the hermit was so willing to entrust his home to a complete stranger, but Barrow nomads are noted far and wide for their honesty. There have been only a few thieves among the nomads, and they have all been outcasts of one sort or another. Theft simply isn't tolerated in their culture. He showed me how to work his stove and invited me to try more of his tea. There is a pump over a basin, so he does not need to go outside for his water or store it in jars. This is a change from the desert, where water is scarce and must be rationed carefully. He said that I could sleep in his spare bed, but I believe I will be more comfortable on the ground. I have never slept on a bed before, and it seems that it wouldn't feel natural to sleep raised above the earth. While a good bedroll is helpful, especially when the ground is damp, a bed seems too high. I wonder what it is that Twisthorn had to see to, and what it has to do with my quest. Still, he seems to know what he is talking about, and he has obviously travelled widely. I await his return. Crow Day, 13th cycle, 7th year, 81st turn. Into the trees. So much has happened today. I am unsure where to begin. I am almost tempted to leave this entry for tomorrow. But then, that will simply mean more to write about. I suppose I should begin with Twisthorn's other guest. Early in the morning, no more than an hour after I awoke, Twisthorn returned with a strange bird creature dressed in fine silk clothing. She was extremely small, barely coming up to my knee. Her feathers were red as rust, and her clothes were a pale green with darker patterns across it. Her curved beak was yellow, with red designs painted on it. Twisthorn introduced her as Rising Whistle Two Clicks. An odd name but it is apparently the closest approximation of her name in the trade language. The visitor was clearly one of the astronomers from Anagog. Their musical language is quite difficult for most to understand, let alone transcribe. Rising whistle two clicks is equivalent to a name, meaning blood of the heart. Of course, I'm told by our resident Anagogian scholar that it could also mean giant fish or oblong fiddle or a number of other phrases, depending on how one said or sang it. She is a stargazer, like the priests among my people, watching the comings and goings of the stars. With such a barren land, is it any wonder the Barrow nomads take such an interest in the skies? She was visiting Twisthorn on her way to the desert, in fact. Twisthorn had been making certain she was safe. There was mention of some minor difficulties with bandits, but she seemed none the worse for wear. Twisthorn had a cut across one gnarled hand, but he was in high spirits. We quickly sat down for tea, and Rising Whistle asked me to tell her of my people. I obliged, paying special attention to our knowledge of the heavens. Fortunately, my second father taught me a great deal. He was always disappointed that I lacked the mindset to become a priest. Still, I was able to tell her what I knew of the skies, and she was very excited. 
Her people have been studying the skies nearly as long as mine have, and she was hoping to trade knowledge for knowledge. I know that she will have great success, for my people love the stars. Learning something of stars in other skies would be knowledge truly worth having. After we were done discussing my people, Twistorn changed the subject to my quest. He said that he had an idea that might help me. It was dangerous, he said, but it might be worthwhile. I told him that I was not afraid of danger, and I am not. It is only failure that I fear. Failure and growing old away from the barrow. I could take death far easier than that, I think. He reached into a chest and pulled out a flute. It was a beautiful instrument, made of black lacquered wood, with stars etched along its length. He raised it to his lips, and he began to play. The music was beautiful, and I almost missed what happened as he played it. Mice began to move out from corners around the cottage. They came from under papers, from behind chests, and from holes in the walls, eyes bright and alert. They did not scurry, like mice usually do, but moved in a strange, rhythmic motion. After a moment, I realized they were dancing. They formed into groups and began to dance together, pairing up to move around the room in graceful patterns. I have heard of these sort of dances, which they do in the larger cities to the north, but I'd never actually seen one, and certainly not performed by mice. I leaned over them to take a closer look, but they did not panic. They kept up their dance and ignored all else. Finally, Twisthorn stopped playing, and the mice ran back to their hiding places. He explained that he had picked it up in his travels. It was only an amusement, but he hinted that he had held more powerful objects in his time. While he no longer had them, he knew where to find them, or ones like them. This was the best news I'd heard. While the flute wouldn't be too useful to us, we keep specially bred salafins to keep mice down. Salafins are a winged creature with a body and disposition similar to a weasel. It showed a kind of magic that an ordinary person could use. He mentioned a flask that contained a never-ending supply of water. We always need water in the desert. I asked to know how I could find such things. He told me to travel a league to the north and three leagues east. If I travelled there, and if I was meant to travel to the strange lands he'd visited, I'd find something. When I asked what I would find, however, he refused to tell me. Rising Whistle spoke up, saying I would know it when I saw it. Twisthorn helped me gather my things and gave me some of his tea. He also gave me a sharp troll-made dagger. It is plain, but forged well, with a good balance. I tried to turn it down, not feeling worthy of such largesse, but he said that I would need it. All he asked in return was that I try to return one day to tell him of my travels. I agreed, and I hope to keep that promise, though now I am less sure if I will be able to. After I said my goodbyes to Twist Horn and Rising Whistle, I set out. It was still morning. Though the sun was already high above the horizon, 
I followed Twisthorn's directions as best I could, walking up and down the grassy hills. I did not see any goat herds, and now I suspect they avoid the place. The grass had been very high, not cropped by animals that I could see. I couldn't see anything but stones. It was mid-afternoon when I had gone as far as Twisthorn had said, and I began to explore. There were a lot of rocks around, but not much else. For lack of anything better to do, I explored the rocks. Like the other rocks in the downs, they were dark grey, rough and cracked. They made for difficult footing. I nearly fell several times, but I managed to catch myself with my walking stick. There didn't seem anything remarkable about them, compared to the hundreds of others I'd seen since leaving the desert, but there was nothing else of interest I could see. Finally, I came to a larger outcrop. It was composed of three different stones sticking out of the ground like crooked teeth, leaning together. They were tall and formed a crude tripod. I didn't think much of them, until I saw a bird swoop out from beneath two of the stones. What made it strange was that I hadn't seen it fly into the stones. Now, it could have been hiding there, but it hadn't been moving very quickly. I decided to look more closely. I walked under the stones, and I did not find myself on the other side of the stones. I was surrounded by trees. An expedition will soon be mounted to confirm the existence of this entrance to the Ravelwoods. Not small little trees like the stunted ones that dot the Farlands, or even the trees in the Oases, or by the Trescu. These were giants of trees. They stretched far above my head, so very far. I could not see the tops of them, and very little sunlight filtered down to me. However, tall as they are, they do not grow straight. Their branches twist and turn like snakes, and even their trunks have odd bends in them. These trees are, of course, typical for the woods. How they stand, I cannot say. I have trouble understanding how anything so tall could be possible, let alone something as twisted as a bandit's loyalties. I was on a path, one barely wide enough for two barrow to walk abreast. Bushes lined either side, laden with brightly coloured flowers and berries. Butterflies flew from flower to flower, and I heard birds singing around me. More flowers grew on vines that climbed up the trees, and small plants nestled in the crooks of their branches. Little lizards scampered from tree to tree, almost too quickly to be seen. A gentle, warm rain tickled me as it filtered through the canopy above. I am now a little way off the path, in a little glade. The rain has stopped, but I am still in the forest. I am unsure how I got here, but I will continue to explore. Thank you for listening. The Journal of Aphromos Long Journey is written by Dr. Everett Mann. 
You can browse Dr. Mann's articles and the other works of the library at wanderers-library.wikidot.com. This production is possible in large part because of our sponsors. John Beatty, Yesenia, Crowcat, Rounder House, Land2D, and John Winfield. Check the description to find out how to support this channel and future projects like this. This production and content relating to the Wanderers Library is licensed under Creative Commons Sharealike 3.0 and all concepts originate from the Wanderers Library wiki and its authors. This recording, being derived from this content, is hereby also released under Creative Commons Sharealike 3.0. I'm Grigori Carpin from Simply Creative People, the podcast where we discuss GOIs, canons, and stories from the SCP Wiki, and we try to recommend things for all fans of the Wiki, new and old. Look for us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Visit the show page at anchor.fm slash simply-creative-people, or follow us on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. Hey there, this is DJ Skip, host of Foundation After Midnight Radio, coming to you from the only third shift broadcast for personnel, by personnel. Be sure to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts to not miss out on containment news and community announcements from within the Foundation.